0: Welcome folks to another episode of the Out of water podcast. My name is Sam Kasten- Smith. I'll be your host and joining me is Will Bushman.
1: We're ending and we're beginning something today, right?
0: That's right. We're rolling from Genesis into Exodus. We're very creative. Yeah, we were wondering if we were going to continue just to kind of march through the Bible, but I so love the Old Testament and I'm such a believer that people need to gain an understanding of the history because you really are able to mine all the stories of Scripture when you understand them in in their context. And so kind of walking with these people and feeling like you're part of their story and like you're you're reading almost like a novel and really entering into the story uh, with character development and everything else is so helpful to be able to mine real encouraging nuggets for faith from the rest of Scripture.
1: Yeah, and going through, this is a weird community we have, like going through Scripture together is always good. But yeah. sometimes the Gospels are a little more straightforward. Mm-hmm. You know, when Jesus speaks, it's a little easier to understand what am I to obey and what am I to do and what is this and what is that. Whereas the Old Testament, it is sometimes far more difficult to see, okay, why is this in here? What is this doing for us? So it's one of those fun ones to talk it out, especially yeah. Exodus.
0: You really got to wrestle it through. It's almost like, you know, it's real history. It's really happening, but it's given to us almost like a parable where you're looking at, okay, what is the character of God? What, what accomplished? What was the folly? What was the wisdom? and you're pulling it out of this story. And then when you get to the New Testament, it's very much straightforward, like here it is. So it's not just a parable, but when when the New Testament refers to the first five books of Moses, it's referred to as the law, which is kind of weird. Genesis, you're thinking, okay, how, why is that included in the five books of the law? Because you don't find a whole lot of law in Genesis. It's stories and yet the reason why it's referred to as the law is it's still giving you principles that you're expected to draw out of these stories to find the character of God that then you are to live by. And so in some sense it is giving you the law even through narrative. You're finding, you know, what what Joseph does is very noble, being faithful through suffering. There's there's an element of law in that and to what you're supposed to strive for. When Judah is willing to lay down his life for Benjamin, there's an element of law in there, even though it doesn't say thou shalt, it's giving you a picture of what righteousness is, which is the purpose and one of the purposes of the law.
1: And yeah, it's almost that the law that comes after this proves what they should have done before. Like, Yeah, that's right. Which is also proving the law. Like, oh, if you go to Genesis and they abided by the law, they abided by wisdom in the law, a lot of this stuff would not have happened, it would have been a... Much less dramatic story, first of all. Much less chaotic. But then the law comes along and it's codified in a way. Yeah, that's right. You mean the the
0: law's going to come and say, hey, don't commit adultery. Well, Genesis just showed you why you shouldn't commit adultery. Very clear. (laughs) It's giving you object lessons that are showing you the law. Hmm. And I, you know what, I appreciate learning through narrative far more than I appreciate learning through law. So my wife loves like propositional truth. Like here's here you know do this, do this. Here's what's right, here's what's wrong. I love learning about the character of God and his nature and his law through narrative far more than you know reading Leviticus or when the apostle Paul is kind of laying down here's what you're supposed to do. I tell me a story. Yeah. Show me what's beautiful and it will make me want to behave that way. Rather than telling me what to do. Neither one of them's wrong, but different people are geared differently. I'm a narrative guy, which you can probably tell. Like that's why we're just going right into Exodus now, <laughs> as opposed to some other book of the Bible. But it's it's really wonderful. All right. So as we launch into Exodus, we still have to close out the last couple of passages from Genesis 50 where Joseph has to assure his brothers. That he's not going to harm them. Because at the end, in Genesis 50, Jacob has just died. They go down, they bury him in the promised land, and then they come back. And now the brothers are going, okay, now dad's not here. What's Joseph really going to be like? <laughs> and so in verse 15, it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph. And notice that they're sending the message, yeah, they're like, which is just kind of interesting. <laughs> Here, pass this note tell to us, my brother. Yeah, tell tell us what he's what he's like. What? How does he respond? So they sent this note to him, and it said, "Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you." Which. I don't remember reading about that. Do you?
1: No, I think this is made up.
0: It could be. I mean, we're left to make that judgment call on our own. Are they, hey, dad said you're supposed to forgive us. He's not here to ask about that anymore. But, uh, you know, if you, really, if you really love dad, you're going to forgive us. I'm guessing they probably made that up. And, so, and now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him. So now the brothers are like, all right, let's go, 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 go. Let's go in there. (laughs) You know, he's weeping now. And they fell down before him and said, Behold, we're we're your servants. But Joseph said to them, Don't fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And so here you see, like, the whole beginning of this is Joseph trying to figure out what's the authentic heart of my brothers, right? Mm -hmm. And so then there's the reconciliation, dad's reunited, everything is good. And now it's the brothers going, okay, what is this really the auth? Is he really this good? (laughs) What's the authentic heart of Joseph? And they find This is a man with a godly, gracious, merciful perspective. Like he can look at the evil that they meant to come out of this when they betrayed him and be able to say, no, no, no. And God's sovereignty, he wove together all of these circumstances to produce something that's totally good and beautiful. And so I accept that from his hand. I forgive you. I've seen your hearts. And don't worry. I do not want you to be afraid. I'm gonna take care of you.
1: Yeah, Joseph has such. I mean, it's so different than in our modern day. This, I mean, not to get you riled up, but this victim mentality that here Joseph has real evil that's done to him. Mm -hmm. Right? He he's sold off. You know, he's lied about. Mm -hmm. He goes into prison, and every turn, everyone's treating him wrongly. Everyone's forgetting about him. Everyone's accusing him of something he didn't do. And then he finally gets into the place of power. And not only with that power, he could lash out at everyone. He could destroy everybody. He'd go back to Potiphar. You know, now he's above Potiphar even. So, like, you know, go back and destroy that relationship. But here's what he does. And he just leads with forgiveness, Mm -hmm. with reconciliation. He doesn't want revenge. He doesn't hoard power away from people. So it just, honestly, it seems too good to be true, but it is. Like, Joseph does it exactly right.
0: Yeah. You know, Pastor Tom has a line that everybody that works here has heard him say a lot, and that is, you find what you're looking for. Hmm. And if you want to find reasons why, you know, people have grieved you or have wronged you, you're going to find them. In fact, somebody, I shared a video with you recently where they did a study and they had somebody put makeup, like a scar Hmm. on people's faces, like you had this, you know, really damaging scar. And then they sent you into job interviews. And right before you were to walk into the job interview, they actually took the makeup off and said, "Oh, we're just we're going to touch you up." But they actually removed the image of this scar from your face and sent you in looking totally normal as you would any other day. And they went into the job interview, and when they when, and conducted the interview, they finished the interview, they come out, and so the survey that would, the people who were putting on this study, I started asking them questions and they found overwhelmingly that the people who went in there thinking that their face was scarred said that the interviewer treated them dramatically different than normal, huh. that, they, that the interviewer made comments that made them uncomfortable about their scar. And so like, because they were told that they were disfigured, they went into the interview and interpreted everything as though that they were being marginalized. And so they expected to be victimized. And guess what they found? They were. They were. And so Joseph has no doubt, like he has been horribly victimized. He is, his brothers did great evil, and yet what is Joseph keeping his eyes fixed on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you totally meant it for evil. <laughs> and yet, behind your evil, I was able to keep my eyes fixed on a God who meant everything for good. And that doesn't mean that we sweep justice under the rug but it means that we will be a far more joyful and optimistic people if we're able to look past the circumstance and the grievance and the the victimhood stuff to keep our eyes fixed on a God who triumphs over all that stuff, to keep our eyes fixed and eager to forgive
1: for the good. Yeah, and I guess our focus on the sovereignty of God and the providence of God is what's missing in that Mm -hmm. because Joseph could trust God fully. And that he was weaving something, even if he couldn't see it. And I'm sure he didn't see it 90% of that time. Yeah. But he really trusts that God is sovereign and God's providence is going to win out no matter what. Yeah. And he's happier. Hmm.
0: You know, if he, if he would have, if, if he'd have consigned himself and said, you know what, I am a victim, he would have gone through life through all of those tragedies feeling that oppression and sadness and he would have had a far more miserable life and yet the opposite is true everybody who sees him in those hard circumstances is saying man the spirit of god is in this person you know he's he's noticing prisoners that are downcast you know like no let's let me cheer you up like he's he is freed from being doubly oppressed by taking the victim hat off of himself and looking for the good so verse 22 moving right along Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. We've mentioned this now twice before. What's 110 years? The perfect Egyptian death. That's right. There's like 24 different places where Egypt talks about this being kind of the divine perfect age of life, that if you achieve this number of years, you're like on a level that's divine. And so Joseph, who is the favored man of Egypt, who rescues Egypt, and lives 110 years. They, that would not have been lost on them. And Joseph saw Ephraim, his son's children, of the third generation. And so he lives a long time to be able to see his great-grandkids. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. So remember what, remember what Jacob did, where he looks at Ephraim and Manasseh and says, you're my children. Well, now Joseph is saying, uh, I'm going to take Machir, the son of Manasseh. He's going to be my own. Um, his kids are going to be my own. And so Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph gives this really incredible command to the Israelites, and he says, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones from here. So even though I'm an Egyptian official, even though we believe that he got a royal burial and a pyramid and everything else, Joseph's bones were not allowed to be buried in Egypt. And so they, they put his bones in a burial box that is on display. And, and tradition goes, the rabbis talk about how his bones were never buried underground. And so you could always see them and they were always there as a reminder to the people in that place, God is going to take them out. God is going to lead them out of the land, and Joseph's bones are coming with us. And so, verse 26 so Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt, where he remains on display for the next four centuries. He's kind of a landmark. <laughs> Which, like, that's what other landmark is there? <laughs> you know, like, this is the reminder of God's promise, those bones. Is that weird?
1: No. I mean, it's weird, but it's interesting. It's, almost, it's kind of dark,
0: but think about what that says. The, one, the hope you have is bones.
1: Well, that's hopeful if you know what Joseph said. It's not hopeful if you're the third generation <laughs> set walking past your great-grandpa's bones. You're like, why are, why are they still but out sure there? I'm sure they talked about it. I'm I mean, sure. the
0: command had to be carried on for them to take the I bones I agree. Out.
1: I'm just saying I hope their communication standards were up to par.
0: <laughs> but also... Think about what that says when Joseph cares what happens to his bones. Like that is saying, I serve a God of resurrection who will keep his promise, who will crush the head of the snake, who will rise us up. Because if death is the end, who cares what happens to your bones? Why is he so, why is he so concerned about That's his true. bones? Because he has faith in a God of resurrection. And so for four centuries, those bones are reminding all the people who walk by them, all the people who are in that city of Ramses, hey, guess what? Something's going to happen with those bones someday. Mm. First off, they're going to be taken back to the promised land, but ultimately, guess what? They're going to a much better promised land. They're mm. going to be raised from the dead. So all of this is like you know, they're going to come up out of the land of death and bondage, which is Egypt. Then they're going to come up out of the land of death and bondage, <laughs> which is spiritual, to to an eternal fate, and so, four hundred years those bones just sit there, and then looking at them, then we get to Exodus chapter one, which is where we're going to begin our new study, and I love the book of Exodus, love this book. So they go down there with seventy people, verse one. It says, "These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household." So they go through the twelve sons: Reuben. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Those are the six sons of Leah. Benjamin, I don't know why we're going out of order here, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, so we're recapping Genesis 50. All of this is written by Moses, by the way. So Joseph died, and all of his brothers and that, all that generation But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So here's something that always makes people go, wait, wait, what? They go into the land with 70 people. In 400 years, biblical scholars estimate that they leave with 2 million. We're told that they leave with 600,000 men. So you extrapolate out from that, okay, 600,000 women and then children on top of that. So at least 2 million people. And you start with 70. And that just sounds impossible, doesn't it? To go from 70 to 2 million in 400 years? I mean, sounds like a lot. (laughs) So until you understand like what happens with exponential growth, like if they doubled every 25 years, And 400 years, they'd go from 70 to 2.3 million people. So that's very doable. That means, you know, if you're doubling, that means that every couple needs to have four kids that survive. Does that sound doable? Yeah. I mean, you come from a family of two. I'm a family of four. But that's totally the norm of the ancient world. In fact, if you go to Africa right now, most of the countries in Africa have birth rates that are higher than what would be needed to make this happen. Here's really nerdy stuff that's totally unrelated, but it's just like this blew my mind. Okay. Do you know that during the Great Awakening, so like think, you know, the birth of America, during the Great Awakening, the average woman had how many kids? 12. Between seven and 10. Oh. Wait, well, you're disappointed
1: in that? Well, I thought my guess was better, but yeah.
0: Well, well, you could say seven, 38, ten. and yeah. that would have been better. But but anyway, this. so in the 18th century, most American families had between 7 and 10 children. So most families had that number. Ben Franklin had 16 siblings. That's a lot. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison, so our three of our first four presidents, had nine siblings.
1: They all had to work like the fields and stuff, didn't well, they?
0: Well, so did they way back then, right? Yeah, I mean... So here we go. So in agrarian cultures or feudal cultures, you had tremendous numbers of children versus what we see today in westernized, modernized, you know, opulent, super wealthy countries.
1: So what you're saying is we should go back to the agrarian society.
0: I'm not all against it here looking here lately. You know, they did a, a study on what type of people
1: have what? No. I don't know they did a study. You, I just you, want to be clear. I thought you were saying, don't go there. Don't no, go there. No. I, I, this is, Whatever you asked, this is did scandalous. you know that there was a study? I'm like, no, definitely don't.
0: <laughs> but anyway, the two factors that lead to the higher birth rates of you, the study of all the countries on the face of the earth the number one religion. Religion. So the more religious a people are, the more children they have, which is why, like, Catholics? 10 years ago, Catholics, Mormons. Utah had the highest birth rate in the country for decades until just recently. Well, they believe, yeah, never mind. G- go ahead.
1: Well, they believe that your kid is an angel that's locked up until you have yeah, You that, have to you? free them. Yeah, yeah, so so yeah, So if you were told, there's motives that, there. There's, yeah. You're like, my goodness,
0: we need <laughs> to have more kids. So, and but the same is true of Islam and other, the more religious, the more fervently religious a country is, the more kids they have. And you look at the places that have the highest birth rates, and they're the places that are. On fire for the faith, Southern Hemisphere Mm. and and Muslim countries. But the other one, and this is counterintuitive, is poverty. Mm. The places with the worst poverty have the highest birth rates and the places that have the highest income have the
1: lowest number of children. Why do you think that
0: is? I don't
1: know. I know in today's modern world, it's kids are getting put off because marriage is getting put off for the sake of careers and for the sake of advancement. And oh, I need to be at this place in my career yeah. before I could even think about having kids. Because if I had a kid at 26, then that's going to hold me back and my financial status will go. And yeah, da 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 da.
0: That's pretty much it. Like children become a competitor to your idols. They are, right? You know, wealth. Comfort, freedom, Knee all deep, that. Yeah, me
1: deep in that. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: You're, you're experiencing this. Wait till, wait till you have four. Just go. Just it's not going to happen. That's happening. I already heard it. you said what eighteen earlier. Morgan heard that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, the wealthier you get and the more idols that you accumulate, the more children become an inconvenience and an intrusion, and oh. the birth rate plummets in countries where you find wealth, and so. Here, you're going to see that they have tons of kids and that we're told that they were fruitful and they increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land is filled with them. And so those opening generations, they're just tons of them, tons of them. And then you get to verse eight and everything goes, <laughs> now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold. The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. And so here I want to pause because there's a lot going on here. First off, I just... I want to deal with something that I never hear skeptics bring up, and I never hear Christians question, right? So Joseph goes into Egypt. He brings his family down. They're doing great, right? They got the best of the land. They're taking care of Pharaoh's livestock. All that is doing great. Then, generations later, the land is now filled with them, and a new Pharaoh comes along who's going to oppress them. But we say that they're enslaved for 400 years. How often do you hear that?
1: All the time. I think you've already said it today.
0: All the time. For, and in and, and some sense, that's right. But what I want to stop and say is, hold on. If they, if they had all this time and the previous generations died and the land is now filled with them and they've had so many kids, well, there's only four centuries that they're going to be in Egypt. That was some time, which means there's not 400 years left for them to be enslaved, Right. So here's the answer to that. Like when Pharaoh hears that they're shepherds, what does he have them do? You're, you're going to take care of my livestock. Okay. And so in some sense, they're already titled as stewards of Pharaoh's livestock. They're servants. They're slaves of Pharaoh taking care of his livestock. That's their job. But they're in a place that's outrageously wealthy. They, they've got the best parts of the land. They're living in really, really nice circumstances but they're slaves even though they're doing really well. So this whole slavery is going to be kind of like the frog in the boiling pot where it starts and it's hey this is kind of comfortable, <laughs> you know, like I I like this. And with each new development in the story, they go from being servants in a place that's like, "Oh, this is great. I'm happy to be his shepherd. This is wonderful." to where now it comes and we're going to put taskmasters over you, and by the time you get to Moses, they're, they're killing the kids. You know, it, it's, it's getting progressively worse as the 400 years roll on. And so then comes the question, like, this is, you know, archaeology historical guy, who's the new king, and how, how did he not know Joseph? And there's two instances, hang with me, because historically this is fascinating. Joseph comes into Egypt in the 12th dynasty, right? And so what happens with them? When there's a famine, all the other countries come into Egypt. They Egypt is overwhelmed with people from all over the place. And do you remember what they're called? It starts with an H. Hyksos. There you go. The Hyksos, which means foreign rulers. They flood into northern Egypt in such overwhelming numbers that the 15th, the 15th dynasty, three dynasties later in Egypt's history, so around... 200 years after Joseph first comes in this group comes in and they seize control of northern Egypt so they all of a sudden people from the land of Canaan become the pharaohs it's not it's not Egyptians at that point it's a Canaanite that's going to be referred to as pharaoh over and by the way they build their palaces in the city of Ramses which is where this family would have been initially stationed right So what's fascinating about this is when it says here comes a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, doesn't know the history of it. Well, here you've got all these incoming people. Do they know about Joseph? Is this a new regime? Is that what it means? Like we don't owe Joseph any more favors because we're a new kid on the block? And oh, by the way, Joseph's family was firmly allied with who? The old pharaoh. The old pharaoh regime. And so when this new pharaoh comes along from the Hyksos and seizes control, Joseph's family and the Israelites have a reputation for being in league with the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. And so when he says, man, there's so many of them, if they keep growing, they're going to ally themselves with our enemies and then overtake us. So that could have been the pharaoh, this new king that comes over that doesn't have any alliance with Joseph anymore. That's what I think. So the Hyksos, when when his, ancient historians like Manetho, who wrote in 300 BC, are writing about the Hyksos, he says this, that they treated the whole native population with the utmost cruelty, massacring some, and carrying off the wives and children of others into slavery. And so when they conquered the north, they took all the natives and slaughtered a bunch of them, but then also led them into slavery. Does so that sound familiar? So... And then when you get the Egyptians who do take back control of the north and conquer the Hyksos and expel them out, the Pharaoh Amos, who's the Egyptian who seizes control again, takes all of the natives who stayed, which would have been the Israelites, and it says that he gave out all of those people as booty, which slaves. He gave them over to to his servants as slaves. And so that also fills that historical scratch like you can kind of see the backdrop being perfectly laid out in the way that exodus is being narrated here does that make sense yeah all right another thing that people often think and you watch this in the cartoons and the movies it's a good movie though i enjoy those movies but what are they always building uh pyramids they're building the pyramids they're not building the pyramids The pyramids, the major pyramids were built a thousand years before them by aliens. (laughs) You want to go down that road? No, (laughs) I
1: don't think we should.
0: (laughs) They're canceled. Anyway, um, but those pyramids were built way, way earlier. It says that they were building for Pharaoh store cities, Pitham and Ramses. And so what are store cities? There's, we talked about this before. They're entire cities that are devoted for the storage of grain, which is you know, ironic that they're fleeing to Egypt because of famine, and now they're to build storage cities filled with grain. Um, and there's, there's an object lesson in that, that you know, if you're not trusting God in the promised land, you run down to Egypt for provision. You get enslaved, needing more and more and more. Uh, but the two locations that he's talking about, Pithom and Ramses, they've actually uncovered. And in those cities, what you find is a tremendous amount of silos where they would store up grain. Even underneath the city streets, they had tunnels where they were putting granaries, like massive stores of grain. And what makes both of these locations so beautiful to me, like looking at it from an archaeological point, is... They're inhabited from, you know, go 12th dynasty, 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th. They're inhabited. You start to see slave quarters being built in a different, you know, strata, the architecture, archaeology layers. They're inhabited. And then they start getting poorer, like this is slave class that's living there, massive numbers of slaves. And then all of a sudden you get to the 18th dynasty and the city's totally emptied. And they look and they say there's no burn layer, there's no corpses, there's no armies, you know, dead, where you can tell that they were stabbed or whatever. There's just none of that. It's just the city all of a sudden that's filled with slaves and granaries empties out and it's gone, almost like there was a exodus. Bam. And so Pithom and Ramses are great historical clues that point us to the fact that this is, real, this is a real story that you can go and verify in the ground. And man, the evidence that they've been uncovering in the last three decades is super compelling. And so here you have them in Pithom and Ramses building store cities, and it says the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and in all their work. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Well, that's not working. They just keep growing, multiplying. So then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, and you get a, you get a picture of just how gross uh, and ruthless these people are. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah, which means beautiful, and the other one means puah, which can mean mouth or like cry. Um, when you serve as midwife, to the Hebrew women, and you see them on the birth stool. If it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live.
1: Why would you do that? Because men were more likely to become soldiers and fight against you. Yeah, or is there a threat? Whereas,
0: yeah, for sure. Like you, you kill the kids you know you're not going to have an all female army at this point in the ancient world so, you
1: still need slaves so you're not want to take all of them out you still need slaves but it
0: shows you like the the men that are going to be more capable of doing the hard labor the heavy lifting it shows that the threat was of greater priority than the, the need for for workers so they start killing off the children and egypt wanted these kids dead but here's the good news it's not going to be these midwives that do it it goes on and it says but the midwives feared god and did not do as the king of egypt commanded them but they let the male children live what do you think of that
1: wild i mean this is not a small gesture this is not just i kind of like god this is like I fear God more than Pharaoh, even though Pharaoh could strike me down right now in an instant, and no one would even bat an eye because I am a Hebrew midwife.
0: Yeah, what would you like? What do you do? You ever think that in your lifetime this might be something that you have to a gesture you have to make?
1: I am not calling. I'll probably not be a midwife, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, no, yeah, I think that would be wild. I think in my my lifetime, I mean, I am twenty nine, so you know, I am not guaranteed a long life, but. Let's just play it out like I have, you know, at least 40 years left. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of the, when you study
0: history and you look at different nations, you know, America really is the exception in liberty and things like that. But if you went around the world and you looked at different places, you know, the longest they go without religious persecution or or something like that to where you really have to mean what you say and your faith could cause oppression or persecution, like, to be what, 29, you said you are? Y- you got another 50, 60 years? You know, that's v- it's very likely, <laughs> you know, that at some point that's gonna be an
1: issue that requires you. Yeah, I think even this one I think to we're resolve. Way closer to even just cultural persecution of we, be- we are now as Christians, Orthodox Christians, believe so different than our current culture, it's gonna start to be far more noticeable. Mm-hmm. That's why I ask I mean because
0: if I'm if Laura and I have had this conversation and there might be people out there you know who think I'm looney tuned for even talking like this, but we were talking about you know with as much as Christianity is now opposed to main- what seems to be becoming mainstream culture, you know with all the sorts of issues, but there are particular issues that are in your face and where people are militantly angry about those positions if you stand opposed to them mm-hmm. It seems like that is going to become something that is going to be less and less tolerated by society, and to make the choice between holding firm to the word of God, not going out of your way to offend people when you don't have to, but holding firm and saying, you know what, I would rather I would rather face jail time, persecution, or death, than to cower away from this, you know, or or to betray what I know to be true or believed to be true in the Lord. Like Laura and I've had real conversations about what that might look like for us. And that's like a haunting thing when you start getting down and it's no longer, you know, the the theoretical, you know, somebody comes into the room with a shotgun and says, you know, yeah. deny Jesus, you know, all those ridiculous kind of things that hopefully we won't ever face. But this is real courage that these women show. Because I would, you know, I'm like Peter. I'll, I'd rather die for Jesus than have to live a life of suffering for Him. You know, Peter. Peter will pick out the sword and he'll charge after Malchus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's ready to die. He's ready to go out in a blaze of glory and fight. But to live a life of suffering and persecution, patiently and forgiving your persecutors, and, and like you see in some of these countries where there's real persecution, yeah, it's humbling. Like that, it scares me like that's that's one of those things where it's like to look at these Hebrew midwives and to see them doing civil disobedience where they say you can do whatever you like to me but I'm not going to betray my convictions because mm-hmm. of your intimidation and it's this culture starting to get pretty intimidating on all those issues is it not Very much yeah i mean it's
1: everywhere <laughs> yeah cuz first we're going to have to die to our reputation yeah. or our, our public standing in a sense you know it's not all of a sudden like you said someone's with a gun in the room and saying deny Jesus, it's going to be a slower crawl to that. Yeah. I mean, I think it'll be, it'll feel quick. Yeah. But at first it's not going to be a jail time and whatnot. It's just going to be, oh, you're against yeah everything.
0: And it's going to require, you know, the, the death of your, the death of your faithfulness by a million compromises, mm. you know? And at some point do you say, I, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to compromise on this even if it means that I'm going to lose my job, even if it means that I'm going to potentially be prohibited or kicked off a podcast platform or whatever the little steps are going to be that we seem to be sprinting toward because nobody's defending liberty, quite frankly. I'm just going to throw that out there. And and, And everybody is so quick, like we talked about earlier, to raise the victim flag and make the other side the enemy. So quick that eventually whoever holds the power is going to determine which side gets stomped on. And right now, I'm not convinced that both sides don't have a heart that want to stomp the other.
1: Yeah, there's not a lot of Josephs out there right now. No, there's really not. There's really not. Yeah, and I think the good part in all of that, the hopeful part, A, God has all this under control, but B, um, long gone will be the days of this cultural Christianity where you can— faux believe and still be still look like a Christian yeah because I mean right now I mean it's pretty clear <laughs> and not
0: clear yeah I mean when I was growing up there were there were benefits to being a pastor or a priest and and with each passing year that becomes less and less so you know you you I mean the, all the stuff going on with the Catholic Church you know priests get routinely mocked and and the Protestant Church you know that it's not it's not a thing like when I'm when I'm around people and I tell them a pa- I'm a pastor it's not like oh thank god you know I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> if you're becoming a pastor today it's not because you want a cush job. Mm-hmm. So my hope is that we don't continue down this path of the deterioration of liberty, the the rise of lawlessness that we see where there's there's no There's nothing sacred. Like the old pillars of the Constitution feel like they're being eroded. And I think both sides feel that way. If we can start demanding better from our leaders, demanding that the law be enforced, demanding that they honor the Constitution, and not just kind of tolerate the fact that everyone is corrupt. Um, But if we continue on this rate, like that's when you do find cultures that begin to disintegrate, and religious oppression almost inevitably comes in. Because when you grab hold of power, the one thing you can't tolerate is a group of people who's saying, you're not my ultimate authority. Mm. And that's why communism and fascism and all those regimes always go to crush the church or to take over the church Every single time, because you can't have a, a, an authority that's higher than the dictator. And so the first ones to get targeted are always the church. And you see hints of that going on in our culture right now, I believe. And so it, it is scary. And to, to have these women who are so courageous look at Pharaoh, who's a total autocrat. Like, you just don't stand up to Pharaoh and expect to be okay. But to say, no, we're, we're not going to do that. And then, and then they lie even to his face, you know, they're, so they're not just, you know, rubbing his nose in it. They at least try to make an excuse. It says in verse 18, So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, uh, Well, because the, the Hebrew women, they're, they're not like the Egyptian women for they're vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. And so this is probably a lie, Right. My guess is it's a lie. There's a lot of people who say, well, if they're having lots of kids and they're fruitful and multiply, you know, with each new kid you have, the more kids you have, the faster your subsequent labors go. So if they're having way more kids than the Egyptians, it would make sense that they really are faster at giving birth. And there's some truth to that, but no. And the midwives would just need to be faster at getting there. Yeah. They would have learned that we need to start the clock a little faster. Yeah. And the fact that they never once got one, (laughs) they just refuse all out. Like they're lying. I I don't buy the whole... Well, actually, they did have faster childbirth.
1: And I like the subtle dig at Egyptian women to Pharaoh. (laughs) That's
0: true. I've never noticed that. You know, she's... Our women are just way stronger. (laughs) Yeah. They're they're better at this childbirth thing.
1: That's why we have so many more people than you. (laughs) And so... But
0: then... So they're clearly being dishonest. Nobly dishonest. The noble lie. And then it's like, okay, well... Is that okay? Are you allowed to say that to a Pharaoh? Are you allowed to be dishonest for the sake of a righteous end? And the Bible kind of just scoots right by that. But notice the next verse it says, So God dealt well with the midwives. Okay, so he's rewarding them for the dishonest courage. Because hmm. um, I don't believe Pharaoh believed that either, <laughs> you know, which is, it's almost like they're insulting his intelligence, which I appreciate here. Because... You know how I feel about government.
1: <laughs> we're learning more and more.
0: Yeah, right. It's growing by the day, sadly. Um, it's, government is training me not to like it. I'll, I'll just put it that way. I
1: thought you are saying the government's growing day by day. Well, that <laughs> just too. Just to double down.
0: <laughs> that too. Um, but anyway, I love that God in this situation does commend them. You know, so here you have civil disobedience, and God is like, correct you know, because you fear God more than man, I'm going to honor you. And then when you get to Acts chapter 4 and 5 in the New Testament and you see the apostles, the, you know, the, the ruling Sanhedrin comes to them and says, you are not to preach in the name of Jesus. And they say, we fear, we fear God more than man. Mm-hmm. Like, we're going to continue preaching in the name of Jesus. If that means that you have to do to us what you did to our Lord, then so be it. But we're not going to stop. And sure enough, some of them are getting thrown in prison they're going to be hunted down. They're going to be persecuted. 11 of the 12 initial disciples are going to die. 10 of them martyred. I guess we don't want to count Judas because he killed himself. But 10 of them are going to be martyred for their faith. You know, they don't back down. All that is civil disobedience, they were defying the emperor. And so while we want to push for something righteous, you don't want to disobey the government just because you don't like the government. You're not allowed to do that because you're supposed to fear God and honor the king. The scriptures command you to do that. Romans 13 says that God ordains governments and gives them the power of the sword and they're ordained to be over you. But the moment that your government sets itself and begins to command you to disobey God, you have an obligation to stand and refuse. And I don't know, like where it gets tricky is you look at the American Revolution where they took up arms or you look at at people like Martin Luther King Jr. who said put me in jail and nonviolent resistance. That's a whole nother debate. Like is it just to oppose tyranny by force? That's a whole nother podcast that we'll probably (laughs) never do. (laughs) Hopefully. Hopefully not, right? But... He definitely calls you to resist tyranny. And it's going to mean uncomfortable things for you to do so. And so we're going to close out the last uh, two verses of this chapter. It says, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. So even in the midst of the heightening oppression, the heightening tyranny, they multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared
1: God, he gave them families. I think it is pretty neat. Um, that these women are named and not the king of Egypt. Like, think about that. (laughs) That's awesome. Like, these two Hebrew midwives who, in this Pharaoh's eyes, are just nobodies. And yet here we are, thousands of years later, still talking about these women. And like you said, we could guess on this whole Hyksos or whatever Egyptian Pharaoh thing going on. But I don't know. I just think God's cool about that sometimes. like... No, these women are going to be in my book forever, <laughs> and billions of people are going to know their names. And this king of Egypt's just going to be gone to the them. stand of time.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're we're totally speculating who this pharaoh is. That's kind of funny, you know. We maybe it's the hyksos, but we know these women. Yeah, you know, they matter. They matter. In fact, speaking of another archaeological nerdy thing, so excited. <laughs> In the Brooklyn Museum, they have a papyrus that's an ancient Egyptian registry of slaves. Out of 95 names that are listed on it, 48 of them are Semitic, meaning they come from the land of Canaan, like Joseph Jacob's homeland. And one of the names that's mentioned in the registry is Shipra. That's wild. So I don't know if it's that one. Who knows if that was popular back then, but that's cool. But that's cool. You know, might have been her. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that's born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so here you've got Pharaoh that is doing something incredibly wicked where he's now commanding his soldiers and officials. When you find a Hebrew boy, you're to throw them into the Nile. And so this sets up the great irony because here you have Pharaoh, who's a god to Egypt, who's saying when you find a Hebrew baby, you throw that defenseless baby into the waters of the Nile. And in 14 chapters time, you're going to have God who comes to the mightiest soldiers of all Egypt. And he's going to throw them into the waters of the Red Sea. And he's going to bring justice upon Egypt. And he's going to avenge, because God is the only one who can avenge. We've got to remember that. He's going to avenge the suffering of his people. And he's going to answer their cries by freeing them, by leading them to liberation, and ultimately bringing justice upon this wicked Pharaoh. And so when you, when you look at some of the ancient writings, like there's a, there's a document called the Ipawar Papyrus. And in the Ipawar Papyrus, which is written by the sage Ipawar, he referred to the Nile as a sepulcher, which means a tomb, because so many had been buried in the river during a time of, of great turmoil and plagues caused by foreigners, is what he's writing about, which is just interesting, you know, that this becomes an issue. Some of the other fascinating things here is you not only have Ippower talking about, you know, the, the Nile being this, birth, this stream of, of dead bodies. But in the actual bricks, remember what the the Israelites are doing is they're creating bricks for store cities all over the region of Goshen. Inside, this is really dark, but they found numerous instances of this where the bricks are still intact of a wall. They actually find newborn infants being laid inside the bricks as burial tombs where the slaves were putting their babies in the bricks. Now, that doesn't prove that it was the, the Hebrew slavery, but whoever the slaves were that are building these store cities, for some reason, are putting infants in the walls. Um, when you look at the archaeologist's report on what they find at different burials, it's really fascinating. Um, and so I, I wrote about this, and it says, Egyptologists have found that 50% of the burials at Avaris, now remember that that's the slave city, involved infants. 50% of all burials they found at this particular time period involve infants. Now, there's higher infant mortality back then, but, but nowhere 50%. near 50%. And then, which, which weighs, you know, probably typical is somewhere around 20%, maybe, tops for a slave class back then. But this is also interesting. Among the adult burials at that particular site, there were three women for every two men. So you can't nail down the precise years where this policy was, but it caused such an impact that there are three women for every two adult men. Why? Because just more women. they're not being able to reach the age of adulthood because they're being killed as babies. And so when you're digging around, you do actually find some evidence for, for what the Bible is saying. And so in all this, there is a, a picture... You know when it when we're told you know they're they're settled in the best part of the land we mentioned this before settled in the best part of the land and the the garden like territory they're being fruitful and multiplying and here comes the serpent crowned king who is slithering into their midst bringing death to them and slavery and so we get to see a picture of what God does when the serpent tyrant comes and brings death and bondage to his people. That is going to be the story of Exodus. It is a glorious story, and so much of this story we can take and analogize to our own Christian walk and what our lives look like on the micro scale is this story on its macro scale. It's a a wonderful study, and we're excited to do it. We hope you'll stay with us.
1: I think it's going to be great.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Do like and subscribe to our podcast. Forward this to friends if you think that they would enjoy it. Um, It's just a great thing. Like, I tell you what, I listen to podcasts when I'm driving to work, I listen to podcasts when I'm mowing my lawn. Find different times during your day and, and routines where you can really begin to marinate in the Word of God and begin to see His character more and more because the more you surround yourself with the Word, the more you will see God at work in your life. You will recognize the calling cards of his faithfulness because you will be, as we talked about at the beginning of this, you'll be looking for them and you find what you're looking for. So God bless you. We will see you next week.
1: We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access
0: show notes at our website riovistachurch.com dot com slash out of water.